Hi, my name is Jim Lewis. And my name is Chris Painter. Welcome to Inside Cyber Diplomacy. Between the two of us, I think we know almost everyone involved in cyber diplomacy. And the idea behind this is really to have frank conversations with those leaders in this area and bring that to the rest of the world, this new area of diplomacy, and talk to these leaders about what's going on. Our plan is that you'll hear things on this podcast that you're not going to hear anywhere else. Frank, not scripted, direct conversations. Hope you like it. I know we will. So please listen in. Welcome to Inside Cyber Diplomacy. We are lucky today to have three of the people who helped build the success in the last group of government experts at the UN. Michelle Markoff of the United States, Johanna Weaver of Australia, and Heli Termaklar of Estonia. All three were experts. All three have long experience in the GGE and in international cyber diplomacy. So let's start it off. Thank you for doing this. Very glad to be here. Pleasure. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Great. So um, how confident were you in that last round that you were going to reach agreement? It was uh, from the outside, it was a bit dicey looking. And uh, Ambassador Patriota, who we had on last week, said he wasn't always entirely confident. But what did you think? Well, look, I think um, that's the million-dollar question, isn't it? In retrospect, it's easy to say the report was going to happen because we had a success out of the open-ended working group. But I think none of us were confident going into this that we would come out with a report. We knew that we had a good report, but like everything, it always comes down to the details. And because the report was so good and had so much meat in it, it also meant there was a lot of room for negotiation right down to the wire. So I think uh, we were optimistic, but um, certainly not confident that we would come out with a report. You know, there was some thought and, you know, talking to some of you uh, in the interim after the OEWG that now that they reached the inclusion of the OEWG, that there was it, it may have made the gg more in doubt so so just jim's question with that that addition heli yeah i think um, also that uh, there were maybe many elements that also contributed to the successful uh, outcome of the gg and we also have to look at the maybe a larger picture and i'm sure michelle will explain uh, the larger picture of the us russia um, current cyber relations and current uh, political relations but I think the, the success in the open-ended working group and also the uh, fact that we had the upcoming uh, new open-ended working group organizational session just after the GG session, also uh, other developments in the United Nations Third Committee. Uh, so it was a bit of a combo of all these different elements that uh, also changed maybe some of the tactics during the negotiation week that we then... Um, went through in New York, so. Well, Michelle, what's your perspective? As Heli uh, said, it's not the best times between Russia and the US right now. Well, you know, both Johanna and Heli are correct. One we had, there was a great impetus based on, I think, the quality and meatiness of the report. I mean, it was hard to deny or to say that this was a 
you know, kind of lightweight, empty uh, diplomatic gesture that could be easily swept away. And so I think that was important. And I think Heli was right, too, that it was, you know, these things are always serendipity in a sense that there has to be a coming together of larger environmental elements for things to work out. I mean, in 2013, we got the agreement because the last day of the GGE then was the day that President Xi was meeting with President Obama in California and China was the, you know, was the odd odd expert out at that particular point and that put pressure. So, but I think what Heli was referring to and Johanna too is one, we didn't have any particular leverage once the uh, OEWG was agreed to. Uh, There's no reason for Russia to like or want to support the GGE. I think they clearly want it to die. Um, But, um, you know, the new administration, the prospect already set uh, quite clearly of a summit, you know, the the notion that you don't want to well, I'm not sure the Russians are following the script about not wanting to screw the United States before the summit. Uh, some do and some don't, but it all kind of brought it brought it together. But more to the point, I think it was not clear when we went into that week, and it was not clear probably, I think, until the middle of the week that we had a really good chance of pulling this out. You know, for me, the indicator that there was always kind of a possibility that it, that failure was not a foregone conclusion was the fact that they gave us edits on the documents. Both Russia and China edited the document. So there was something to talk about. In past GGEs, if China didn't want to play, it would just delete 14 pages of a document and there wasn't much, it was either take it or leave it. And, you know, there wasn't much to talk about. And then Russia wouldn't do anything at all. So I think it was touch and go. I think if we had stood on, you know, some high and mighty set of principles about every little comma they wanted changed, we wouldn't have gotten there. But uh, there was a huge group effort and Joanna was busy, you know, uh, twisting arms and taking names all week. So. We should note that the Chinese expert from 2013 has never been seen again. So it's true. Uh, a lesson, a lesson for all concerned. Maybe all three of you could tell us, you know, the phrase uh, deep in understanding appears four times in the text. And so it, it really builds on the 2015 agreement. Um, what are the highlights for you? What are the parts that you think should get special attention? Johanna, why don't we start with you? Well, I think that the biggest and most practical deliverable out of the report is the norms implementation guidance, which really, when we look at the focus that we've had in the open-ended working group of saying, yes, we are all, every country in the world committed to the 11 norms of responsible state behaviour, what the GGE report does is actually really deliver the practical advice and guidance on, well, how do you, what does it mean to implement those norms? And I think that is a very clear value add um, from this report. And I think the norm around attribution um, is one that I would particularly um, focus in on. 
The other key result for me is a recognition of the application of international humanitarian law to state conduct in cyberspace. And I think this is something that was heavily negotiated. That text, I'm sure, will be carefully examined word for word, but that is something that we have fought for for many years. And now seeing that in a, a GG report is a real victory. So that would be my two biggest takeouts. There's lots of good content there, though. Kelly, how about you? Yes, I would actually also um, support Johanna's comments that we have many paragraphs on attribution in this report, which is a very remarkable progress. And uh, I understand also that this truly was compromised language found in the end. And, uh, and some nations had to um, really sacrifice important notions for them. And, but this is how it happens in multilateral fora. That each of us has to sacrifice a bit as well in order to find con- consensus, and, and, and this is what happened. I also, uh, I'm very glad that in addition to mentioning IHL, which is very important as well, especially uh, in, in the context of our cyber discussions, I think that yes, the generic international lawyers always wonder why we are talking about uh, international law applying in cyberspace, because uh, international law applies anyway, so it doesn't matter whether it's in or space or ever, but there are those specific negotiations in cyber that not all diplomats might be aware of uh, that we have had. And therefore this IHL um, notion is important. And also, uh, I think it's also very, very important that we uh, have fulfilled our mandate and we can add the national views on how international law applies as a separate document, uh, which was of course in our mandate uh, in the resolution already, and, uh, but there were still discussions how we do this, and, and now it is part of the, of the package uh, with the GG report. I think these uh, national statements on how international law applies would uh, greatly benefit to the further understanding of uh, importance of the legal principles in the existing international law for, for state behavior. You know, reflecting back on the 2015, where at the last minute, substantial parts of the international law discussion ended up on the cutting room floor, which I know didn't make you happy. You know, comparatively, this is a lot more. Did this this also weigh in the balance of the last minute or was this pretty sad? I know there was lots of negotiation. No, I mean, certain parts of it certainly weighed in the balance. I mean, I think there were certain, if you ask the international lawyers among us, I think they felt that there was a little less than they would have liked. But I think unless it was a 300 page tome, they wouldn't have, they would not feel it was, was sufficient. But, you know, the actual mention of international humanitarian law had not been permitted for over a decade. But that actually ended up it, we didn't we didn't argue over it after, you know, and I think partially that's because of the China kind of conceded the larger point in the OEWG. And so I think that they were much more worried about how the attribution pieces turned out and, and things like that. And, and if, uh, you know, and for me, in terms of what's important, I would look at the forest rather than all the trees. I think that the, the way the norms are explained and taken together, it builds a kind of a roadmap for states about how you respond to incidents, whether you're a victim or an emanator 
uh, how you deal with certain things, what the expectations are that you can do within your own territory, you know, sensitivities and the care needed to be taken with attribution. It kind of builds uh, a much more nuanced picture, I think, of what the expectations are for a standard of conduct. Can I uh, drill down a little bit on the attribution? Uh, all three of you mentioned attribution. How do you think that was advanced here? And, and Heli, you talked about compromises. What do you think was, was compromised? I mean, I, I see language from before talking about you can't be too hasty, you have to take all the facts into account. But you're right, there seems to be a much more discussion of attribution than in prior reports. And that's obviously a linchpin to a lot of the, the activity we've seen over the last few years. So why don't we start with that one with uh, Heli and then, then Michelle, then Joanna, just to mix it up. Yeah, on attribution specifically, we had uh, some last minute proposals uh, to change the text a bit in this part. Uh, I think it's also uh, interesting um, to see that the views of different uh, experts also depended on, uh, on which maturity level they are with their governmental coordination and guidelines on attribution. And some of our experts, I think, uh, were in a position that they nationally had just finished their own um, homework on attribution uh, coordination structures set up and so on. So, and that's why they stress particular points in the broader picture of attribution. And, and for them, those were very dear. And, uh, and of course, I understand how, where it comes from and so on. And at some point, we, we had to come together in terms of, uh, of finding a consensus so that all these new elements uh, that were proposed uh, at the last minute did not find their way to the text, which was our, uh, our uh, like-minded view and interest. Uh, and at the same time, we had to sacrifice a bit uh, when it came to certain stresses on whether that attribution is a, is a national prerogative and it's a political decision. So, well, when you, when you, when you uh, do the attribution in other fields, anyway, it's a national decision, it's quite clear. So you don't have to say it all over again in every uh, document in all security policy fields. So if you if do um, attribution, who invaded my airspace? We are not saying that we do the national decision. It's clear it's, it's a national decision. So I think it's a, it's a bit of this uh, in cyber still that cyber is seen as a special thing and people would like to always stress the obvious for usual diplomats. And they would like to stress that specifically in the cyber context. So I think we are still in, in, in this stage where cyber is not properly mainstreamed yet. And so we basically state the obvious in cyber context many times over because it's not so obvious for cyber people that those diplomatic concepts actually apply in cyberspace. So I think we are, it's part of this a broader, broader, maybe strategic picture where we are with our overall um, mainstreaming effort of cyber into the broader foreign and security policy. Michelle and Joanna, do you have something to Yeah, so, you know, yes to everything Heli said, but again, going back to what motivated kind of the the discourse over attribution was, of course, the sensitivity, China and Russia, both of whom were quite uh, articulate, uh, in some cases even emotional, about feeling that they were unfairly accused of uh, malign behavior 
uh, and that they've, you know, they've represented themselves in many, you know, as being innocent in many cases, and therefore that we, the West, had not appropriately substantiated our evidence before we attributed. And so there were a lot of, you know, a lot of what we kept out of the report was language that would either deal with that through the establishment of an independent attribution body in the UN or, you know, had these long set of adjectives about true facts and true substantiation and uh, uber, uber, uh, you know, factual stuff before you say anything. And I, I think part of it came down to the fact that they get annoyed with our our public press and everybody who obviously in the cyber field who has something to say about who done it every single time. And, you know, my point to the Chinese on this at one point was, you know, you gotta, you gotta discriminate the signal from the noise. You know, the signal comes from our formal government statements and attribution, and you should take a careful look at how long we take in order to put out a formal statement, how confident we have we have to be before the government commits itself to attributing identity to a perpetrator. And I think, you know, we are very careful. And I think that went some way toward ameliorating the, the push for all this extra language. So it's not what we got in, it's what we took, what we were able to keep out. So you basically said, don't listen to Chris and Jim. Yes, something like that. <laughs> uh, Joanna. <laughs> <laughs> look, I, I would start when I look at the attribution conversation. The first observation I make is that for all of those, those commentators that say that public attribution and the efforts that Australia, our like-minded community, obviously including the US and, and Estonia, have been making in public attributions, a lot of the time people say, well, does this have any impact? Does this make a difference? And I would say that the, the level of sensitivity the level of focus around both the norms section here, but also attribution in the context of the international law section Mm. in uh, respect to the law of state responsibility is evidence that the public attribution, the responses and the coordinated action that we're taking is having an impact. So I think that would be the first key takeout that I have. And then I guess it's a few observations about uh, some of the text that we have here. One, I think the real value from this is recognition of the different types of attribution, that there is the recognition of factual or technical attribution, there is legal attribution, and then there is political decisions to act. And I think that is really important to have those um, recognised as distinct things in the report. I love the phrase um, substantiated facts, which (laughs) does appear in the report, which I think um, says a lot. And I think from a from that perspective for Australia, of course, whenever we make a public attribution, it is substantiated. We have to be confident that when we make a statement attributing behaviour from one state, um, from one country to another, that we have substantiated that. That substantiation may not always be public, but it is and always will be factually substantiated. And I think that's that's an important aspect of the report as well. 
And the final thing which goes to the sensitivity point is there's recognitions, particularly in the norms section around the responses have to comply with international law and obligations under the UN Charter. And again, I think the fact that that was something that countries felt the need to seek reassurance of goes also to the point of the sensitivity and the feelings around responses um, in the broader efforts that we're working on. The 2015 report isn't allowed to use the words international humanitarian law, but it has the principles of humanity, necessity, proportionality, distinction embedded in it, but linked to the norm on critical infrastructure. And one of the changes that is in the newest report is in the threat section, they talk about information campaigns to influence politics. How did that discussion go? It's not, it's not a, it, it wasn't in earlier reports because it wasn't as much of a problem. But the focus is beyond critical infrastructure now, the information operations. What was the discussion like in the group on that, if there was any? Hallie, do you want to start? I think um, the original proposal to, to add this element came from, um, from a European nation, if I'm not mistaken. Given the fact uh, how different uh, countries have been um, having this challenge of misinformation, so they, they felt that it has to be reflected in this report, otherwise it, it wouldn't be the legitimate report. But I think for many nations, uh, this was seen as an important point, and so there was a consensus around it. So, and uh, I think we we basically all uh, uh, agree that yes, uh, it is a new threat where we have to pay attention. Was there much discussion of sovereignty uh, as part of this? I mean, did that come up? That's always been a sticky point. I think in the, in the context of the information operations, it wasn't a big focus of the discussion. Um, the, the information operations were discussed. There is obviously a very legitimate concern that these types of operations can rise to the level that will in, impact on national security and therefore international stability. And that was the, the there was a very keen desire to focus um, the recognition of the threat around that particular element um, and not to look and not to expand, for example, or to allow justification of um, looking and examining content issues. Um, so that was a focus. And sovereignty was obviously a part of the discussions around uh, international law and, and some of the norms, but not so much of a focus in the context of the uh, information operations because of the way we were seeking to frame the threat of information operations. And sovereignty is, is as it often is, sprinkled through the report like a secret sauce on top a bit, but not not overly this time, it seems. And Michelle, I, I also noticed in the, the listing of, and I know you've been resistant to a listing of critical infrastructure in the past, but I thought there was a very helpful listing that included both, you know, traditional things, including election infrastructure, which I thought was very interesting that appeared there, you know, going on on Jim's point, but also some cross-cutting things like uh, what what you need to make the internet work, kind of the public core without saying public core, and some of the other uh, language and healthcare. You know, the way that was phrased, did you have a problem? I mean, I know you've been resistant to this because you don't want to single out some and, and think others are not important, but there seemed to be good cabining language there. Well, you know, the, the issue for me has always been that we, we drafted that norm to be 
sufficiently flexible to allow any state to define its own critical infrastructures. You know, if peanut farming is a critical infrastructure for state X, then I didn't want to list everything but peanut farming. And they, you know, later find out that it wasn't covered by the norm. So we have resisted, but these were used as examples as opposed to being, um, you know, a, an inclusive list. And, you know, for me, it would have been a losing battle to argue against it. So it was put in a way that, that does not preclude any state from defining its own set of critical infrastructures. And that new norm versus old norm, it seemed like the, some of the proposed new norms, quote unquote new norms, like the global core of the internet were, phrased as an articulation of the critical infrastructure norm uh, rather than creating something new. Oh, absolutely. No, it, yes. It's not a norm, it's an example, again. So all three of you were members simultaneously of the OEWG and the GGE, uh, which is kind of neat, but tell us what the differences were between the groups, which was, uh, what did you do differently in the OEWG and the GG, or did you have the same script <laughs> and stick to it? Uh, Johanna was busier on the OEWG. She had to manage 193 countries, so she was a little bit busy. What was different? Well, I mean, you what you get with all member states is the full spectrum of their political positions. But, you know, I have to say, even in the OEWG, even though we had to deal with the, the Greek chorus of, you know, Cuba, Nicaragua, Venezuela, Iran, Syria, you know, all of those guys, to all of their credit, they were highly interested in this subject. And also to their credit, it was they and China, who insisted upon reaffirming the, the key from prior uh, GGE reports. I mean, that wouldn't have happened. As a matter of fact, left to the devices of, of some countries, there would have been no mention of prior GGE reports. So, you know, China put the kibosh on that, insisting on using prior negotiated language in key parts of the OEWG. So that was very encouraging, I think, as we came out of the out of the OEWG. The GGE and GGEs in general, it's a, a smaller group, obviously, although 25 was the biggest we've ever had. And the notion that you could get down and drill down into very nuanced topics. Um, that's the difference in a GGE, that you have experts at the table who are into the precision of the language in terms of what they were trying to explain. I think that I would agree with what Michelle said in terms of, you know, the real difference in the discussions was the depth of discussions, and that is driven purely by a numbers game. If you have 25 people versus 193, you're always going to have the opportunity for more in-depth conversations. But I think it's a real credit to the UNODA, the, the Secretariat, that the way that GGEs are structured is, and we talk about this all the time, but it really proves the point, 
that they are based on equal geographical distribution. So whilst it isn't all countries in the same room, the idea is that you bring together experts that represent the diverse views from countries all around the world. So you create that microcosm that allows you to have those in-depth discussions. And I think that really played out when you looked at you know, the issues, the preoccupations, um, the sensitive issues, the things that everyone agreed on, they're actually the same in the GG and the open-ended working group. We, we just had more time to drill down in the uh, GG. I think probably one other big difference between the GG and the open-ended working group um, from a very practical perspective was we had more people from capital in New York for the GGE. And that was just a function of the pandemic, uh, the stage of the pandemic, it meant that more people, uh, experts were able to travel to New York. And so for the open-ended working group, we had two capital-based delegations, um, myself and Russia. Um, And for the open-ended working group, we had five, which doesn't sound like a lot, but it did make a big difference. And we'd also come a long way in terms of the tech set up. So we um, uh, hosted at the Australian mission um, the delegations um, or some, most of the delegations that had travelled to New York um, and it meant that we were able to conduct it in a hybrid form and have experts um, meeting in person and we you know, had Michelle as a talking head on a stick <laughs> quite often and, um, you know, it was really, you know, compared to the open-ended working group where we had, you know, a set up with a, web, a WebEx, you know, this I'm talking for the informal parts, but, you know, we had a, a laptop with 10 people sitting around kind of yelling with no proper microphone <laughs> and it was, it was awful. So, you know, that was also a really big, uh, big difference just in terms of our mastery of the tools that we had available to to us. Ellie, you've probably had the most experience with multilateral negotiations given your time at the commission. What was your view on the difference? I should start uh, actually complimenting Johanna who made it all happen because uh, she was there like a continuous constant between those two groups uh, from March uh, to May in New York. She had done quite a lot of confidence building with uh, our Russian friends. AKA so, drinking. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we noticed all the pictures were in bars. Yeah. <laughs> it's a part of the confidence building, as we know, you know, in diplomacy. And uh, I think the, the Russians uh, uh, already were very comfortable to discuss all sorts of issues because of that kind of confidence building that has been made during the open-ended working group. So during the GG week, so it was kind of easy already. I shouldn't say, of course, easy, because it was still an effort to make sure that they responded and so on. But I think that there was a, um, a huge difference that there was a person in New York making this kind of uh, trust-based relationship with the Russian delegation from our side. So And, and I think this really made a difference. Without uh, this uh, effort that Johanna has put into the uh, kindly Australian um, mission was supporting uh, us in New York, I am not sure that we could have had so kind of successful uh, outcome of the GG. Maybe yes, but but still we say more um, unknown unknowns. But I think uh, uh, in a way uh, what also was important was the US-Russia negotiations possibly happening there. uh, And once this US-Russia link was kind of secured. I don't think that the Chinese were interested in mixing up this balance type of, you know, they, they didn't see maybe a, a major point of disrupting the, um, uh, the status quo in the first committee cyber discussions as it is. 
once they got what they wanted out from the report. So I think um, this, these elements possibly were important for the GG. But if I compare the open-ended working group and GG dynamics, then because of the pandemics, yes, I agree with Johanna that the open-ended working group dynamic was very um, different. There were many um, uh, moments of confusion, actually. And I think, uh, of course, nobody has mentioned the role of chairs. <laughs> but we have to also, I think, make a huge compliment to Ambassador Lauber uh, mm. during the open-ended working group, who was still uh, possibly doing uh, quite, uh, quite many um, efforts to make sure that um, all the negotiations went well. For the difference in general of open-ended working group and GG, I think the open-ended working group, as would be uh, uh, expected, was a, a bit of a socializing effort. So that we took the already existing framework, we took those previous GG reports and we basically explained those elements during two years for, for the larger community of the UN nations. GG certainly is a small group, exclusive group, and allows us to go deeper. So in the European Union context, we usually say deepening and widening. So I would say that the open-ended working group was widening and the GG was deepening. So there, there's lots of good language in the report, as you say, drilling down further on the norms. Uh, there's good language about capacity building. There's good language even about multi-stakeholder involvement in implementation, mm -hmm. uh, which I thought was, was interesting and, and new. I guess the, the real question now is where does this all go? You have the open-ended working group. You know, the five-year mission, it's like Star Trek, sort of, the five-year mission to chart new territory. Uh, you have the program of action, which is still being worked out, that's been suggested. You may have at some point in the future, perhaps another GG, but what, where do you see this trending? Where do you see this going, building on this report now? How is this going to be used going forward? This and the OEWG. Michelle, why don't we start with you? Well, to me, the simple fact of two consecutive consensus reports has done a huge amount to further strengthen this notion of the framework of responsible state behavior as the standard of conduct for states. And I see it happening almost organically that states are kind of evaluating uh, cyber activities or malign behavior against this framework and against this standard. And even if it's only the spirit of the standard and not the letter of a particular norm, they are invoking it. So um, I think there's, it, it's probably, in some cases, it may be very thoughtful, deliberative, domestic discussions in, in governments about implementation. In other cases, it's osmosis. It's whatever the process is that, uh, that makes something customary behavior for states. You know, we, we're, we kind of have this, we're in this odd uh, netherworld, I think, where we have these very particular norms, and now we have very clear discussions about what they mean and how they might be applied. But at the same time, you know, they remain non-binding and voluntary. So, and, and remember, as experts, we are just that. We are experts in our own capacity. So governments need to, their actions to kind of confirm uh, all of this. So what we will probably do in the fall is have a 
a follow-up resolution that uh, welcomes uh, the GGE report and that asks states to be guided by its recommendations. And uh, we will use that, I think, uh, the U.S. in any case, will use that as a linchpin for further capacity building and educational efforts. Um, And of course, we have to, whether it's POA or OEWG or whatever it is, we have to look at what the mission should be going forward as an international matter. You know, what is it that we need to seek to achieve? I I think that despite this kind of kumbaya that we've achieved with Russia and China, at least with Russia, we know we have very different goals. Russia is, you know, all about a new cybercrime convention, an information security convention, and where one would leave off and the other begin is not clear. So, you know, legally binding conventions and constructs, which we don't think are are ripe or useful, are on the Russian set of objectives. So we have to decide um, what what it is that we need to do. I think uh, what we uh, as an international community, of course, need to keep in mind is that we have very different groups in our uh, UN membership when it comes to cyber maturity. And it's quite difficult to cater for all these groups because you have a um, more advanced, technologically advanced countries that uh, are able to discuss the nuances of international law applying in cyberspace. And then you have still uh, quite basic um, questions, uh, especially um, uh, from uh, developing nations uh, uh, asking how to build a cert and, and so on. So I think it is um, important that somehow all the new United Nations processes would cater for different categories of countries in the UN. And how to do this, uh, what kind of mechanisms, uh, uh, what kind of implementation measures we are using I think it has to be well calibrated and I hope that between now and Anga in the fall, we will have enough of the reflection time to make sure that we come up with the right solutions for for all these different groups in the UN. Before I go to Joanna, I know you have to leave, but any last words or any parting thoughts for you? <laughs> I, I think uh, I, I would like really to thank both Johanna and Michelle who were instrumental to make both uh, reports happen. Johanna in New York during the Open Ended Working Group and GGE. And, and thank you for the hospitality in the uh, Australian mission for this war room that we had there in uh, in your mission. And, and it was a very uh, nice uh, group of uh, experts that uh, actually, I think we, we basically supported you morally. I am not sure that uh, we did a, a lot, all of us, but uh, at least we could be showing the moral support to you. Uh, when you uh, had to go through those difficult negotiations with um, uh, all these uh, different powers. And of course, uh, Michelle has been instrumental uh, to make sure that the whole uh, GG actually happened this time. And there was the resolution in 2018 to create the new GG in the first place. So I think uh, everything that we have done uh, so far shows that we are on the right track. And now the question is how we implement. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for doing this. Yeah. Yeah. Bye, Joanna, sorry, next to you. And then uh, any, any any thoughts about where, where next is? 
So I think um, just to briefly pick up on, on a couple of points, one about the chairs, I think, you know, Ambassador Patriota and um, Ambassador Lauba had extremely different styles, but I, the outcomes that we had from both of these processes would not have been possible without the chairs. So I think, you know, absolute credit to both of them um, for the manner in which they ran these processes in pretty difficult circumstances to get results that are, frankly, I think, exceeded everyone's expectations, including my own, which were very high. And um, thanks to Heli for the, the recognition of the hospitality. I thought it might be interesting to share with people that I, I was just looking at the catering um, uh, for this event. And from New York, uh, I can confirm that the GGE was powered by seven gallons of coffee uh, in, uh, in the five-day meeting. So um, if that gives uh, some hint of um, the hours that were being put in. In terms of what comes next, I think the cumulative outcome of the GGE and the open-ended working group represent a line in the sand. Now, of course, there will be countries that continue to dance right up to that line and there will be some countries who continue to cross that line. But I think the result of the open-ended working group and the GGE is that no country can credibly now say, oops, I didn't know there was a line. And um, that is a pretty incredible outcome. And also that we can now use that line um, to hold countries accountable when they cross it. And that is another considerable outcome that we've got out of these processes. I think Michelle's point about the fact that this is now um, essentially a, a guidebook, if you like, for countries to understand what they need to do to implement, whether that is by osmosis, whether it's recognition of the fact that they're already implementing a lot of these norms so they can pat themselves on the back, feel good and identify areas for improvement and using it to focus capacity building efforts will be um, incredibly important. In terms of where we go to now, I think the key question is, do we need to move that line forward? Do we need to deepen the line? And that question will be one that will preoccupy us in the near term, both in the context of the POA, but also the context of the open-ended working group. And, you know, I think there is a lot of work to be done in this space. Um, and the election of Singapore as chair of the new open-ended working group, I think, is a really positive development. Um, and I have confidence that no matter what comes next, that there is more than enough work to go around um, and that we can be dividing the efforts, but also hopefully bringing um, the efforts together to unify the processes as we go forward in the longer term. Maybe building on that, uh, one thing you hear a lot in the discussion, you know, cybersecurity is now one of the flavors du jour. And very often you'll hear from even senior people in the government, um, we need norms or former <laughs> cabinet members. We need norms for cybersecurity. Oh, God. So two questions. One, what do we need to do to get people awareness? How much do we need awareness? And two, how does this link, if at all, to the September 2019 announcement made at the UNGA by 20 countries on their right to take action when the norms were not being observed? Uh, Michelle, do you want to start? Well, I, I mean, I think we've kind of tromped all over this kind of tangentially in our conversation today when we talked about white 
some states that engage in malign activities are sensitive to attribution. That's because, as Joanna noted, we're standing up and attributing. Um, and, you know, that's become uh, a real important moral bludgeon in terms of uh, enforcing uh, the statement of September of 2019, which is that, you know, if you sign up to these norms and everything, even though they are voluntary and non-binding, there is some kind of an expectation that you will observe them. And when you don't, we're going to call you out on this as, as a group. And if it's sufficiently egregious, we will seek Obviously, non-forceable, if it's below the threshold of the use of force, non-forceable countermeasures or retortion to deal with that. Again, this is a process. You know, you've, we've, we're in this fuzzy area of what is uh, voluntary and non-binding and what that means in terms of, of holding a state's feet to the fire for not observing them. But again, it's become a a standard of conduct, a, a moral and ethical way of, of behaving that I think more and more states are willing to stand up and say when behavior does not meet that standard. Joanna? Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's sort of two parts to your question. One is, do we need more? And I think the answer to that, if you look at what happens, um, what is happening um, out there in the real world outside of the UN uh, context, not that the UN is not in the real world, but... There could be a, debate on that point. <laughs> well, no, no, no. I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's a microcosm, right? You know, it's clear that, that there is more that needs to be done. And the question is, how do we do that in a way that doesn't undermine what we've done already and that actually moves us closer to our goal, which is a peaceful and a stable online environment? So there's, there's that question of do we need more? And then there's the question of how do you raise awareness? And the open-ended working group process was an incredible feat in raising awareness. We took um, countries, many of whom um, had limited exposure of the previous agreements and the depth, the level of engagement, the quality of the engagement was really quite incredible. And I think it really has created a community of diplomats who can speak authoritatively about this framework of responsible state behaviour, how law applies, how norms apply, confidence building measures, capacity building, in a way that there just wasn't a community of diplomats in New York who could talk about those issues um, before the open-ended working group um, started. So that in itself is a representation of the maturity of this conversation and the mainstreaming of this issue as an issue for diplomacy. That is separate, of course, to the political level um, and the political discussions that go on. But you look at now at the way that, you know, President Biden is prioritising these issues, that it's a priority issue um, on his first um, overseas travel. It's something that's being referenced in the speeches of presidents and prime ministers all around the world. So what we what a key focus for all of the diplomats and policymakers in this is, Yes, maybe we do need to have more, but we also need to make sure that as we're talking about more, there is that understanding and awareness of what we already have so that the two happen um, uh, in partnership and mutually supporting 
um, rather than undoing that good work that has already uh, gone on. In terms of something more tangible, I think one of the most interesting elements to be considered um, within the program of action um, is the possibility of the program of action, including a political declaration um, that would elevate the commitment to the application of international law, to the 11 norms, to a political level. Um, and I think that's something that will be considered by all of the um, program of action co-sponsors and um, you know, I see real merit in uh, something like that as a logical next step. For someone who's been involved in cyber for 30 years, it's, it's amazing to me. It's remarkable, really, how much attention this has gotten in the last two months. Uh, and I hope this is not a flash in the pan. There certainly have been once in the past, but that does set the stage, as you say. But there is remarkable also misunderstanding of what's happened already. For the first time, I think you can actually... I've, I've heard people in political positions actually cite to things in the GG, like for instance, you're not letting uh, a conduct come from your territory uh, that is malicious, which applies- Although it took a while to get them to understand that had been agreed to. Yes, yes, but that, you know, that applies full force to the ransomware stuff that we're seeing now. And it'll be interesting if that actually comes up in that form, it will come up in some form in the president's meeting with Putin. So. So I think there's a real opportunity for, for you and others to, to operationalize these for the, in a way that you haven't before. So, you know, I do think this is a, a if not a golden moment, certainly a, a new moment in the history of these, these issues. Um, Jim, did you have anything else you wanted to, to add? This has been a good conversation. Thank you for doing it. Let me note that we have a podcast with uh, Ambassador Lalbert going over his role of the chair in the OEWG. We will be releasing uh, momentarily uh, a podcast with Ambassador Patriota on his role in the GGE. Both of them were essentially master classes in diplomacy, so uh, worth a little bit of attention. Uh, let me thank our speakers. Well, I was going to say, you really have to, this is a match set. You have Patriota, you have Lobber, and you have these three diplomats here. So you really have to listen. Yeah, to if you think about it, we have individual podcasts with Michelle Helly and Johanna. Johanna, everyone sings your praises. So you, if we can, I'm, if Andre got a medal with three rubies, I hope we get, one, get a medal with at least one. But uh, with that, if there are no further comments, uh, I have one, listen. I have one. Uh, Read yes? the reports. They're really good. Look them okay. up on the, on the website and read the reports you've got homework thank you and, and yeah then, i think that's good advice. available now for your your reading pleasure right yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly we'll, the, we'll post the links then with the podcasts to make it thank easier you. and so you can accept your responsibility and, and michelle um, you'll, you'll get you should you still deserve the larger daca and the apartment and stuff that that andre always gets too so yeah, or at least he says well, he does. Yeah. yeah, there's he gets a lot more, and I've never gotten anything but a back of the hand. So, anyway, it's that's not <laughs> why. Well, Michelle, you have my appreciation and the appreciation of the <laughs> oh, international okay. community and for your. Of work. course, we've made the offer to get everyone a meatball and a glass of bad red wine at Marie's Italian restaurant on Second Avenue. The next time we're all in New York. Oh, okay. Uh, on that cheery note, thanks for joining us. This podcast is made possible by the generous support of the Cybersecurity Agency of Singapore and the Estonian Ministry of Foreign Affairs.